Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today's program by thanking Dan O for making another donation to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And also, I should mention that if you want to have your name in Volume 1 of Lorenzo's Chronicles, <laughs> well, you need to join me on Patreon.com by the last day of this month. You see, the monthly donations are all made on the last day of the month, and since I'll be publishing this new book in December, and it'll be published in the public domain so you'll be able to get it for free, well, those who join us on Patreon in December are going to be included in Volume 2, when it comes out next year, but the window on Volume 1 is closing rapidly. And uh, finally, I'd like to thank longtime fellow saloner, frequent volunteer, and Patreon supporter Dan N., who made a significant Bitcoin donation to the salon the other day. As you know, I began accepting Bitcoin donations several years ago with the uh, plan to hold all of my coins until I get really old. <laughs> and uh, with the rise in the price of Bitcoin, those donations over time have really added up. For example, a donation of $20 worth of Bitcoin a year ago is now worth around $200. So today, even a donation the equivalent of $20 given in Bitcoin could be worth a lot more five years from now. But in any event, Dan N. just made a significant donation to the salon with some of the Bitcoin that he's been storing up. So thanks again to the two Dans, who are both benefactors of note today. Now, for today's program, I'm going to take us back to the most recent Burning Man Festival, where we are going to get to listen to John Gilmore's 2017 Palenque Norte Lecture. While most people today know John as one of the founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, whose work we've discussed here in the salon on several occasions, us old-time internet geeks first knew him as the founder of the alt hierarchy on Usenet. And uh, he's also been very active in drug policy reform. Now, John's talk at Palenque Norte this year was done in the form of a long Q&A session focusing on drug policy and the current work of MAPS, where he's a member of the board of directors. So now let's join the crowd in the big tent at Camp Soft Landing and listen to the recording of this talk that was made for us by fellow saloner Frank Nuncio. And uh, by the way, if you're new to this podcast, or if you don't know much about Burning Man, then I should let you know that I didn't add any music to this recording. What you're going to be hearing in the background is exactly what it sounds like at the festival. Sometimes the music around your camp may be loud, and, uh, well, sometimes you'll barely hear it, like in this recording. But the music that you will be hearing in the background is coming from a nearby theme camp. But I'll bet you'll be surprised at how quickly your brain tunes it out. So now here is John Gilmore speaking at the 2017 Palenque Norte Lectures. So, um, since I work on a variety of different stuff and I'm never quite sure why people come to hear me, I figure I should ask you what it is you want to hear about from me. So, well, let's, let's start with drug policy. Um, 
to do that, for my personal story, I really have to start with Silicon Valley. I was a computer programmer, and I learned business from the guys who hired me. And then I started making my own businesses in Silicon Valley. And two of them succeeded and made me a millionaire. And when the second one sold, I had more money. You know, I was raised middle class. I didn't ever have a lot of money. My parents, my dad always had to work to support the family. You know, it's the usual story. And so having all this money made me nervous. And I thought, if I dump this on my heirs, on my brothers and my parents or whatever, if I get hit by a bus, they're going to be completely, their lives will be destroyed by receiving all this money. And actually, I had a brother who got uh, from, a, from a stock gift I had given him, received a million dollars at one point. He burned through that million in a year and you know, came out worse than when he started. So I didn't want that to happen. So instead, I thought, okay, I want to spend this down on something that will make the world better. I want to like, give back to the society that gave me all this money. And so I thought, okay, what, what can I really work on that would make the world better? I didn't have huge piles of money. You know, I wasn't a Rockefeller or a George Soros or somebody like that. But I could say spend $10 million over 10 years trying to make something better. It's like, well, the environment, you know, you could barely make a dent in it with that. Um, arts and things, not really my thing. And so I started looking, but drug policy was already, was a terrible situation, right? 600,000 people arrested every year, 2.2 million in prison for basically for nothing, right? For using a substance that somebody else disapproves of. Institutionalized racism across the criminal justice system, particularly around drug crimes. And so lots of things you could work on. And it had been getting worse since the 1930s, but it started to get better in 1996 when gay rights activists passed medical marijuana in California because it would help people with AIDS when nothing else would help. It, in particular, instead of wasting away from having no appetite, it would give them an appetite and they would eat and they would survive longer, not forever, but longer. And that raised the public sympathy to say, if you're dying of a disease no one knows how to cure and marijuana helps, you can have it. We won't arrest you for using marijuana. So that had happened in 96. I sold my company in 2000 and saw that things were starting to go the right direction. Maybe I could make things go faster and stronger in that direction. So I wouldn't be pushing a boulder uphill the whole way. I'd start to add some force to it as it rolled down the hill. And so I decided I would spend 10 years and $10 million trying to end the drug war. Well, that's kind of a vague, you know, how do you end the drug war? You know, it's got 50 different facets. And so I just started giving money to all the different nonprofits that were working on different parts of that. So 
to normal that was working on marijuana stuff, then the Marijuana Policy Project, the Drug Policy Alliance, MAPS, the November Coalition that works on prison conditions, the, um, let's see, Mothers Against Abuse and Misuse in Oregon that was working on teaching people the difference between using drugs and abusing drugs. Um, people working on reforming sentencing, getting rid of mandatory minimum sentences. Just so, you know, so many different angles on the drug war. And over that 10 years, I gradually learned which organizations were effective. At, I'd, at first, I didn't know what my strategy was. So the strategy was work with everybody and figure out what works. But eventually, I figured the strategy was it's time to stop just talking about fixing the drug war and actually do it. So a bunch of the organizations were just there educationally to teach people that drugs would be okay, but not to actually change any laws. And so I stopped focusing on those organizations and started focusing on the ones that manipulated the political system to actually change the laws about drugs, and particularly about marijuana. And the best organization doing that at the time was the Marijuana Policy Project, based out of Washington, D.C., headed by Rob Campia. Um, they work in multiple states at once, working with local activists, figuring out what the laws are there, how you run an initiative, what the limits on that are, how many signatures you have to gather, how, what kind of opposition will show up, what do the newspapers think about the issue, and sort of building up a coalition of people who can put in the money and the time to collect the signatures, run a campaign committee that would uh, draft an initiative and get people to vote for it. And so over that 10 years from 2000 to 2009, we went from having medical marijuana in four states to 14 states. But that was progress. That was significant progress. You know, four states could just sort of be an outlier. But by the time you've got like a quarter of the states having medical marijuana, it's hard for people to say, oh, that's just a flash in the pan, right? It's, it was more of a trend, and the trend was heading in our direction of locking up fewer people, making it more culturally normal to use marijuana. But across those 10 years, we also um, didn't legalize marijuana for adults anywhere, and that disappointed me. We tried in several states, Alaska and Nevada in particular, and, but we didn't know what we were doing as far as running initiatives. And one of the things I learned is if you're going to put a law in front of the voters on the ballot and you want it to pass, you have to write it in such a way that more than half the people will vote for it. It seems simple in retrospect, but most of these initiatives were written by activists and they wrote what they wanted the law to say, not what the public wanted the law to say. 
And so then 30% of the public would vote for it after a long, expensive campaign, and, and we didn't change the law in those states. So we learned you can't get too far ahead of the public when working on initiatives. You have to go out and talk to people, do focus groups, do polling, figure out what, what the public has sympathy for and what the public won't stand for, and then go somewhere in between those and say, okay, we'll give the public an opportunity to vote something they want into the law. And as we learn more about that, we realize that you know, the public's compassion for people who have serious illnesses is really what drove the medical marijuana successes. And so we focused on that. And in some states, like California, we could pass an initiative that said any doctor can prescribe this, can recommend this for any condition. In more conservative states, we had to put up an initiative that said it can only be used for these six conditions, for glaucoma or serious pain or multiple sclerosis or whatever, and then make some way you could appeal to the health department of the state to add more conditions to it. So we just so kept pushing things along that way, but the result me coming out of the tech world, I got discouraged. I spent 10 years at this, and we basically got more of the same. Like, not a revolution, just a little more of the same. And so I thought, okay, well, after that, well, I also worked on psychedelics, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But marijuana, the reason to work on marijuana is it's three times as popular as all the other illegal drugs put together. So if you can solve the legal issues for marijuana, you've solved three-quarters of the drug problem. You've taken out three-quarters of the money. You've taken out three-quarters of the crime. You've taken out three-quarters of the cops, you know, of the work they have to do. And so marijuana is kind of the, the big kahuna in drug policy but I didn't want it to be the only thing I worked on. And so I also did a bunch of work around psychedelics as well. And little bits on opiates and international drug policy and things like that. But mostly marijuana and psychedelics. So I'll finish up a little bit with marijuana and then we'll do psychedelics. At, at the end of my 10 years that I had said I'll spend this much money and this much time, I went back and reevaluated. Okay, what am I doing now? Should I continue this? Should I change, do something else, go back into industry? Um, just go off and retire somewhere? And I got discouraged because we hadn't really made that much progress. One of the things I was doing was trying to apply what I knew about business to charity work. So having measurable goals, like in a business, your main goal is make a profit, right? If you continually lose money, eventually you go out of business. So you have to avoid that. You have to figure out where you're spending more than you're bringing in and change that around so you're bringing in more than you're spending. When you're trying to change the world, 
you need a different kind of metrics, but you should still have metrics to understand, are you succeeding or failing? What do you have to change? So my metric was the prison population. And throughout that decade of 2000 to 2009, the prison population continued to grow from about 2 million to like 2.2 or 2.3 million people. So that was discouraging too. Like we were changing medical marijuana around the edges, but we weren't really changing the heart of the drug war. So I thought, well, what should I do here? And so I sort of opened myself up to look at doing other things talk to other people about startups I might want to get into or just open myself to other opportunities and maybe it's kismet but what happened is no other interesting opportunities came along so I said okay I'll continue working on drug policy even though I don't think I'm very effective at it right I don't know what else better to do what I didn't know was the prison population had actually started dropping in 2009. But the statistics take a couple of years to collect and publish. We didn't figure this out till 2011. But we were having an effect. It just was slow and hard to notice. And so the population has been dropping slightly every year since about 2009. Um, we are making a dent in the problem. We're not done by any means, but the U.S. is still the world's largest prison population in absolute numbers and per capita. I mean, we imprison more people than the next 10 countries put together. It's insane. It's, it's a warped part of our culture. And even fixing, even eliminating the drug war entirely would only reduce that prison population by six or seven hundred thousand people. So that it's it's a chunk out of two point two million, right? But it's not the whole job. But still, you know, if we can knock a third of it out of there, then people, other people, can go like, okay, I'm going to work on the violence, and I'm going to work on the gangs, and I'm going to work on the corruption and the petty crime, whatever sort of figure out how we can make progress in areas other than drug policy. The other thing that happened after 2009 was we actually started running and winning legalization initiatives. First in Colorado and Washington, and then in Oregon and Alaska two years later, and then two years later in four, uh, four more states. 2016, California, Massachusetts, Arizona, and uh, which one am I missing? Pardon? Nevada, yeah, exactly, right here. Washington was one of the first to go. It happened. Oh, D.C., yeah, D.C. is an interesting case. It turns out that the Constitution gives total control over the laws of D.C. to Congress. Um, but that's cumbersome, right? Because they don't want to deal with parking tickets and stuff like that. So they have basically authorized a local government there to make most of its own laws. But Congress can override them within 30 days anytime they want to. So it turned out that 
DC has initiatives, but the initiatives can be canceled by Congress because the Constitution gives them the power to run the entire thing. So activists there made an initiative that repealed the crimes for marijuana possession and marijuana use and giving away marijuana. They couldn't make an initiative that would pay new laws that would make it legal for a business to sell pot because Congress would come in and wipe that out. But Congress couldn't really get rid of the repeal of the other laws. I mean, they would have had to, Congress would have had to make their own law that outlawed pot there after the citizens took it away. And that, that was too much work for Congress to think about doing, so they didn't do it. So that part stuck. So it's legal to have pot there, but not legal to sell it in stores. And the D.C. City Council is actively interested in making it possible to sell it in stores, but they, they're figuring their way through the minefield of getting it past Congress. The other interesting part about the D.C. initiative, it was led by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and it was deliberately pitched as a response to racism to say, D.C. has this disjoint culture. It's got the political class that comes in that is largely white, and European and it has a resident class that is largely black and comes out of the south and I mean these are not necessarily downtrodden blacks there's all different levels in the culture there there's a very strong um, black culture of service of having the you know white tie entails the best service in the restaurants the best everything um, and people taking pride in their work and all of that but anyway they pitched the law the reform as saying you know these white people who run things have been busting us black people in the district forever and the way to stop it is to make it legal so they can't bust us anymore and it got like 75% of the vote for legalization. It was the highest vote for legalization in any, any state. So um, that kind of talks about the marijuana end of drug policy. We have, we have initiatives. We now have legal pot in eight or nine states. We are going to run an initiative in Michigan in 2018 to legalize it for adults. We're going to run another one in Utah to legalize medical marijuana in also in 2018. And so we're making more progress on that front and sort of creeping out state by state. The big issue there is what, what do the feds do? And so far not only the feds, but the local politicians have always been opposed to fixing the drug laws and fixing the marijuana laws. And so one of the questions was, so where does the opposition to legalization comes from? Some of it is just sort of basic conservatism, like 
I understand the world the way it is, and I don't understand how it would be then, so I don't want it to change. But some of it comes from people who are making money from the drug war. I'm not talking about cartels and gangs. We haven't seen any opposition from cartels, which is interesting. What we see is opposition from police officers, police unions, police chiefs associations, district attorneys, drug court judges, prison guards unions, uh, probation officers. All of these people are putting their kids through college on the swelled prison population of the drug war. And they're afraid if it goes away, we're not going to need to pay them anymore. Or they might have to focus on some much harder, more dangerous crimes and more dangerous criminals. Most of the people who are selling pot are not going to slit your throat. <laughs> and so... Um, 99% of the opposition to legalization comes from cops and prison guards, basically. And the politicians, when it comes to criminal justice issues, they tend to ask the cops for their opinion. You know, if somebody says you ought to change the laws, they'll get the head of a police union or something in to say, we think this is a good idea or we think this is a bad idea. And on drug policy, they always think it's a bad idea to improve it. Right? The police love the idea that if they pretend to smell pot, they get to search your car. Right? Because they want to search your car and you might actually know your rights and tell them no. So anyway, we have managed to defuse some of that opposition because there's a small fraction of police officers and judges and such who have been through the mill on the drug war, who have seen their colleagues die in service of trying to bust people, have busted a whole lot of thousands of people themselves and seen the drug sales go right back on immediately after they bust one guy and somebody else will be out there selling drugs. It's like they can see the futility that this approach is not solving the problem. And so an organization was formed in the early 2000s called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition that is composed of solely former law enforcement officers and a few current ones who believe that we've been going the wrong direction. And this is actually one of the most radical drug reform organizations that exists. Most of the organizations in drug policy won't really tell you what they personally believe. Like, they might personally believe that all drugs should be legal for anybody, for adults, for kids, whatever. You know, when they grew up, they were 15, they smoked pot, it didn't do them any harm. You know, but they don't want to say that publicly because it turns off a certain fraction of the people so they'll say well we believe in responsible adult use <laughs> you know and they'll focus on one drug and not all drugs because that also you know what do you mean any kid could go and buy heroin you know law enforcement against prohibition has been working on the front lines against heroin and those guys think the only way to fix this problem is to make all those drugs legal for everybody 
right? That making them illegal has not solved the problem. My own brother who had spent his million dollars in a year was a crack addict. That's part of how he spent that money. And he went to prison for being a crack addict. And going to prison did not help him with his crack addiction, right? He would have done a whole lot better getting medical treatment or something like that, counseling, something. Prison was not really the answer. So, so the law enforcers are really out there, the ones, the ones that are willing to speak out. And what they tell me is when they talk to their colleagues who are still in law enforcement, a whole lot of them agree with them but won't say anything publicly. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to be discriminated against by their fellow officers. They want to get promoted through the ranks. And so they, they shut up about it but they'll tell their colleagues in private, keep on talking about this. Well, I've been talking for a long time. Do you all have any comments, questions? Yes. Do I see any progress in the, the rights and opportunities given to convicted felons? Um, some. It's, it's small improvements around the edges, it's not, it, it's hard to get rid of that stigma overall. But there's a campaign called Ban the Box that has popped up in various states and various cities. And the, by the box they say, you know, check this box if you've ever been arrested or if you've ever been convicted of a crime. And this shows up on employment applications and landlord applications and things like this. And so in some cities, it's not legal to ask somebody whether they are a former convict. Once they've served their time, they're back in society, and you can't discriminate against them by asking, you know, did you go to prison? That's one, one improvement. Another improvement is, as we've learned more about what the public will accept, in marijuana legalization laws, we've been able to make the laws better for people who were convicted under the old drug laws. So in Alaska, we ran an initiative, I think in 2002, that would have given not just amnesty to all the people who were busted under the old laws, but would form a commission to study paying reparations to the people whose lives had been destroyed by the drug war. Well, the public didn't like that. Actually, they didn't vote for that. It didn't pass, so we never found out what kind of reparations would be just. And people kind of gave up on that idea for a while. And when we passed the first legalization initiatives in Colorado and Washington, we tried to be very conservative in what we asked the public for, because we wanted it to pass. We wanted to set a precedent that some place in this country it would be legal to smoke pot. But after we had a few of those victories under our belt, we started going, okay, what can we do for all the people who were victims under the old laws? And what we discovered in doing focus groups is people didn't like the idea of automatically getting rid of all of those convictions. They felt like 
if if the law was X on this date and you broke it, then you know you deserve to be punished for that. You knew what you were getting into and you did wrong. But they seem totally willing for people to go back to the judge that sentenced them and ask to be resentenced under the new law. And we put this in the California Initiative, and tens of thousands of people have gone back into the, into the judicial system. Initially, it was people who were currently in prison, right? They put the, the, the judicial system put priority on getting those people out. So if you had, like, grown pot without a license, because there were no licenses available, and you were serving time for that, you could go back and the re- be resentenced under the new law that just makes it like a civil issue, like you needed to get your license to sell that pot. And so thousands of people got out of prison for that, and then tens of thousands came along in the next wave getting their previous convictions overturned so that they can honestly say, I am not a convict. I, I was not convicted of that crime. I was resentenced under the new law, and it's not a crime anymore. Or I'm not a felon. Maybe I committed a misdemeanor, but I'm not a felon. So baby steps. Other questions? Um, how do you know about how to write the, um, the right message so that people are receptive, essentially, to the ballot you're going to propose? Well, you have to go to each state and talk to people there. Basically, there's first, first when you're just deciding which states to work in, you do polls. So you'll encounter, you know, have people who encounter people at the grocery store and just ask, you know, can I ask you a few questions? How do you feel about marijuana? Blah, blah, blah. Or they'll call you on the phone. Some statistically valid sample, maybe they'll call a thousand or two thousand people in a state with hundreds of thousands of people. And from those answers, you get a feeling of, okay, if 60% of the people in the state like the idea of legalizing pot for adults, then what are the details of that? Can it be sold in corner stores or can only be sold in specialized pot stores? What age, can 18-year-olds get it or only 21-year-olds? What are, how many people are allowed to grow it and how many people are allowed to sell it? And all of those details can also turn people off to your initiative. Even if they support the general idea, they might not like the details. So you ask a subset of people, you sort of gather a focus group of 20 or 30 people and uh, pay them to spend the afternoon listening to ideas about marijuana reform and saying how th- what they feel about them. And if you do that a couple times and you get consistent answers, then you kind of know, okay, we think we know the gestalt of this state. They're willing to go this far, and you write up the initiative to do that. All right, Pinky, microphone is coming. Uh, my question, my question is, um, what do you think about decriminalization compared to regu- to um, legalization? Because if we could get enough people that 
Go ahead. I mean, 18-year-olds that are in the service are drinking beer. I mean, an 18-year-olds want to drink, smoke pot and do. Yep. Um, we could get enough voters if we did a huge thing maybe, you know, where we just voted to decriminalize it rather than um, legalization because that way if it's decriminalized, they can't keep arresting people. Right. Yeah, decriminalization is actually already the law in almost half the states. Um, it's a possession of pot is at least for the first couple times you got caught and if you get caught with less than an ounce in most states it's now a civil fine it might cost you a hundred or two hundred or five hundred dollars but it doesn't give you a criminal record it's legalized of course they're I'm from there I mean they're it's terrible. You can't. You can't really get it. They do everything they can to not help you, um, and people just shouldn't be in jail for it. You know. Well, I agree. People shouldn't be in jail for it. And the challenge is, how do you make that transition happen when you started off with a whole state government and politicians that were opposed to fixing it? Alaska is a particularly hard case because the legislature has been so hostile to uh, fixing it. Yeah, it's, been, it's been legal there since the 70s because of our personal, personal rights, individual rights in your home. You were allowed to smoke since the 70s. But it's like since we've been trying to legalize it, it's like they've, they've just been really bad. You know, that's all. But we've, it was legalized in Alaska in the 70s with the um, Raven Law. Right. Well, and even in a place like Ohio, it was decriminalized in the 70s. There was a little wave of decrim that happened back in, back then, and it has lasted till now. But one of the things that's going on is only 24 out of the 50 states have initiatives. In the rest, you have to work with the legislature to change the laws. And so the Marijuana Policy Project in particular has been learning how to do lobbying in state legislatures. And because we're running out of states where we can pass initiatives. So it turns out it's much easier to get the legislature to pass a decriminalization law than one that sets up a whole regulatory system for pot shops. And so what we do in each of these states is we'll start off probably proposing a medical marijuana law finding some legislature who is sympathetic because someone in their family had a disease and was helped by it um, or had kids who had seizures or whatever have constituents who have people with that issue and we'll get them to introduce a medical marijuana law pass it through one house in the first year maybe or probably it doesn't even pass in any house but maybe it gets a few committee hearings the next year maybe we find you know we, uh, we hire someone who was termed out of the legislature and can't be a legislator anymore but he knows all the legislators he'll go in and be a lobbyist to work on this and they'll find someone who will sponsor it in the other house of the legislature so now we've got bills happening in both halves maybe the Senate will pass it and the House won't. Maybe after another year or two of working on this, both houses will pass it, but we have a bad governor and he vetoes it or she vetoes it. 
we just keep working in like 10 or 12 states at a time, nudging these things forward wherever we can make progress and kind of hanging back where we've got a bad committee chairman who just won't let the bill through, a bad governor who won't sign anything. Eventually, those people turn over. And when a good governor comes in, we've got the legislature prime to pass a law. We start them with medical marijuana because it gets like 80 to 90% public support. And so, you know, med if you look at the vote totals for medical marijuana, it's higher than for any politician. So you can convince a politician, if you support this, you will become more popular. You'll get more votes. We move on from medical marijuana. Once that's passed and implemented, then we'll say, okay, how about decriminalization, right? Stop clogging up the courts with these stupid low-level pot busts. And in many cases, we can even get the cops to say, yeah, we should stop wasting our time on this stuff and let us focus on more serious issues. And once you, then, once you get the legislature to do decriminalization, then you can start thinking about legalization. And in some places like D.C., legalization without stores, but it's better than no legalization at all. In some states, so far no state legislature has passed a full legalization with stores. We're working on a bunch of them. We think probably either Rhode Island or New Hampshire or Vermont will be the first to do it because we've had legislatures in all of those. We've passed it through multiple houses of the legislature but not gotten it past governors. So when the governors change out, it'll probably happen, and my guess is in the next year or two. So going through that process, we have been able to introduce uh, decrim measures in 10 or 12 states, and many of them have passed in the last four or five years. So we are making progress there. Question? Thank you. Uh, I think you brought up a, a really good point when you were saying a lot of the uh, resistance comes from people whose careers are kind of based on uh, making money off of this. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how to kind of redirect that energy and take away some of those people's fear that they're going to like lose their careers and kind of divert them and then maybe make them less of an enemy and uh, more at least a passive uh, barrier? Any thoughts on that? I, I had a strategy on that, but so far it has failed. Um, my strategy was to, was to couple the pot issue with the, the public pensions issue. It turns out that in almost every state, um, they have thousands or tens of thousands of employees that work for the state or the local governments. They have promised those people pensions when they retire, but they don't actually have enough money to fund those because like 10 or 20 years ago, they, they thought they'd get great returns in the stock market and they slacked off on putting money in for those pensions. And now they're underfunded. So when oh, this whole cohort of cops retires, the money for their retirement is in doubt. 
And so I thought, okay, we could maybe make friends with the cops on this and say, we will dedicate some fraction of the tax revenue from legalized pot to paying the police pension fund to let them retire. And that way, you know, the, the rest of the municipal employees and the state employees, they still have to work out those pensions. But at least the police pensions would be, like, solved. Their issue is done. And the state has less of an overhang of problem to work out. So I pitched this. And part of the idea is it's hard to get pot reform activists to agree to give money to cops. Right? These, these are the enemy. These are people who have caused most of the harm that relates to marijuana, right? By tearing up families, putting people in prison for years at a time. And the idea of, of the taxes from it going to those bastards is, is not popular. But I thought, okay, suppose we don't pay them with the taxes, we pay them to retire. <laughs> and I thought that, you know, that might sell to the activists. And it was pretty well acceptable to activists, but it turns out the cops didn't want to play ball on that. They were like, this sounds like we're in it for ourselves, and we're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it never came together as sort of a grand bargain with the cops. Um, instead, the tax revenues, tax revenues from pot should probably go into the general fund of the state to just be spent for whatever the state needs. But because we're doing this through initiatives, and initiatives have to appeal to the public, we tend to put in things that are popular with the public to spend money on, like schools or drug treatment for the people who are still using drugs. Like, you know, we'll tax the drug users to help the drug users, and then it, they won't be a burden on the rest of society. Um, so that tends to be where some of the money goes. We try to put as much as we can into the general fund so that, you know, if an earthquake happens, you can use it to fix the earthquake, right? If you've got... Right, infrastructure, you can spend it on infrastructure instead of it being dedicated to one purpose forever. More questions? Yeah. Uh, so we have a, a Republican Congress and a Republican president, and you mentioned the importance of the, you know, the feds. I, I was wondering whether you have any predictions for how things will play out at the federal level over the next seven years. Uh, seven is more hopeful, so I'm happy to leave it at seven. <laughs> right. On drug policy, I think if we, if we play our cards right, we will continue making progress. Um, drug reform, some, some kinds of drug reform is popular among Republicans. It turns out that Democrats and Independents support like legalization of marijuana more heavily than Republicans do but there's still a significant chunk of like 35 to 40 percent of Republicans who support it and so usually what we 
do is we form a bipartisan coalition and get voters from all sides who happen. It's not, it's not so much an issue that divides people on Republican versus Democrat grounds. There's now the Republican Party and some people in it profess a belief that states should have the right to make their own laws and not be interfered with by a more centralized government. They don't always act that way when it comes down to it, but it's a good talking point when talking to them to say, okay, if you're a conservative and you believe each state should be able to make its own laws about gay marriage, about taxation, about uh, zoning and property rights and inheritance and all that stuff, why can't they make their own laws about drugs? And they, you know, they'll think about it as opposed to just going, we hate drugs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Is there any ongoing effort or do you think there will be any results in the legalization of psychedelics? Ah, yeah, let's, let's, let's go into psychedelics. If you, if you look at polls about psychedelics, what you discover, can you, yeah. what, you, what you discover is that with medical marijuana, we get like 80% of the public in favor of it. With recreational marijuana, we get something like 50, 54%, 55% nationwide, higher in some places, lower in others. If you, if you do a poll and you ask, should LSD be legal for anyone to take, you get like 10 to 12% of people who believe in it. It's really going to be hard to do this through the ballot box. So the strategy that the drug reform movement has been following on psychedelics, well, it's, it's a combination. On the, on the legal front, what's happening is medicalization. We're playing on the same sympathies that brought medical marijuana into the mainstream to say, find some terrible diseases or conditions that these substances can help, and then the public will say, it's okay for those people to use this. And in the case of psychedelics, it turns out they're, they're wonderful for a whole bunch of conditions, particularly psychological conditions. The, the process of taking a psychedelic sort of kicks you out of the rut that you were in of seeing the world in a certain way and acting in, in certain responses to what happens around you and gives you an opportunity to see those things in, from a different angle and to not follow the same path that you would have followed when you were straight. And in people whose disability comes from getting stuck doing the same thing over and over, it's a great kick in the ass to get them out of that. And so the classic one that we started with actually is obsessive compulsive disorder, where people just like feel like they have to wash their hands every 10 minutes or whatever, or they feel unclean. You know, they can, they can get beyond that if they do some psychedelics. But... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is another 
where you've been through some terrible traumatic experience. You were in a car wreck, you got raped, you got, were in a war and were fired on or um, had people blow up around you or you shot people who shouldn't have been shot and you hate yourself for that. Whatever it is, people get stuck in that and they can't get beyond their emotional reaction. They get re-triggered by circumstances, by ordinary circumstances around them that wouldn't trigger you or me necessarily, but that make them relive the terrible experience they had. And by taking psychedelics in a supportive, safe environment with a therapist who will help them talk their way through it, there we've, we've been running clinical trials now since back in the 1990s. And... We've treated a, like something like 105 or 108 subjects with MDMA. And more than 60% of them got better after taking MDMA with therapy. And if you look two years out, it's more like 66 or 70%. Um, the few people will relapse, but other people will make further progress even after the treatment is over. And this is, this is very surprising. The drugs that we have for treating things like PTSD basically numb people out. They, you know, they're antidepressants, they're um, things like Paxil and Zoloft. They make it hard to feel, and they, they don't work immediately and they have a lot of side effects um, and they don't cure people they suppress the symptoms but the problem goes on and and you have to take them every day so you're subject to those side effects every day when we use psychedelics to treat PTSD we give the patient typically two or three doses of the psychedelic spaced out maybe a month apart and with supportive talk therapy in between. And after that three doses, they're done. They get insights in the process of spending an, a day on psychedelics that break them out of their rut and they don't need to take the drug over and over again to stay out of the rut. Once they realize, I don't have to be trapped in this, then they can do that in their straight life as well as when they're on psychedelics. And so it actually provides a significant number of cures in a field where the Food and Drug Administration is, is the regulatory agency in the U.S. that regulates all of these drugs for, um, for every, every kind of disease, but in particular for psychiatric drugs. They have never seen a drug like this before. The, both psilocybin and MDMA are going through clinical trials approved by the FDA and are getting results that are just off the charts. So that's the path that we've been taking as a strategy to free up these drugs, is convince the regulators by following their own rules, by reading the thousands of pages of regulations and following them and saying if you want 
a substance to be a drug that's legal to sell in the United States, you have to prove two things about it. First, you have to prove that it's safe for people to take when a doctor prescribes it for them or for over-the-counter drugs when they choose to take it in a certain dosage. And second, you have to prove that it's effective at solving some problem for somebody. We, are, we, we have shown safety in those hundred-some patients. None of them have had any major issues as a result. Nobody's had heart attacks. You know, nobody's had brain tumors. It's, uh, of all the things that could go wrong, none of them have gone wrong among those, that patient population. And we've shown amazing efficacy for PTSD. So, the process of getting a drug approved goes through three phases. In the first phase, you give it to ordinary healthy people and you look for bad effects. And that's phase one. We went through m almost all of phase one years ago, decades ago. We also, in the case of the illegal drugs, the government has spent a lot of money studying those drugs to find bad things about them. There's a whole institute called the National Institute on Drug Abuse. It gets more than a billion dollars every year of your tax money, totally dedicated to proving by science that drugs that are already illegal are bad for you. And not a penny of that money can be spent on looking for any good that those drugs can do. It's in their charter, it's all about bad. But we can use that research to show the government spent $200 million trying to find bad things about MDMA and look at this little thing in the corner that they found. Everything else, negative results, it wasn't bad. So we don't have to spend that money, they spent it already. So, so that was phase one. Phase two is you give the drugs to people who have a problem and you see if it solves their problem. You're working on efficacy. You're also looking for side effects and, and safety issues. That's the phase we just completed with that hundred-some patients in five different studies. Phase three, you take what you learned about the drug in those first two phases, you decide on a particular dosage and a particular condition and a particular set of treatment outcomes that you're measuring and you do that in a larger population where you're going to see much more subtle effects and that's phase three and that's the phase we are just entering with MDMA and will soon be entering with psilocybin. Now the catch to all this is doing this kind of drug research is not cheap. You're basically you're a charity, but you're being a pharma company. And while the pharma companies, when they tell you it takes $10 billion to make a new drug successful, there's, there's a lot of fudge factors in there. They're counting the interest that you could have earned on the money that you spent on doing that. Because you could have just put the money in the bank and made interest on it. So, you know, we count that as part of the cost. They're counting all the costs of all the drugs that they tried that didn't work, 
because they say, well, to get to one drug that works, we've got to try ten that don't. And so that artificially inflates what it costs to go through that process. It may, may cost them billions in the long run. But on the psychedelics, we already know millions of people are taking MDMA every weekend. Some of you may have done it last night. And we know there are very few reported problems from those people. Um, so we already have sort of an evidence base. And we're not testing drugs that we don't know whether they work. Right? The reason we are pushing MDMA through this process is because before it was made illegal, therapists were already using it with their patients, and we knew it worked. The only reason we're jumping through these hoops at the FDA, it's not to prove that it's efficacious. We know it's efficacious. It's just to push the bureaucratic buttons so that they will make the determination that this is a legal medicine. So the result is we don't have any failed drugs to roll in the costs of. We just have the costs of the people we actually pay to do the studies, the airlines we pay to fly the patient to the place where they get the treatment, you know, the statisticians we pay to munge the data and produce graphs and charts that FDA will read, etc. And that's where the money is going. We are... So in doing phase three for MDMA in the United States, we estimate will cost between 20 and $25 million, treating about 200 to 300 patients. And we have raised almost half of that money and we're working hard at raising the other half. Now, you know, 20, 20 to 25 million sounds like a lot of money. But it's cheap compared to the criminal justice system. It's cheap compared to what we spend on cops and prisons and all of that stuff. And it's also cheap compared to what we spend on disability for PTSD. Um, it turns out that veterans are a very sympathetic group with the public. You know, if, if somebody has a service-related issue that they got PTSD from being in a war, the public thinks we ought to be trying to treat them and we ought to be taking care of them. And people who can't go out much and can't work because they have PTSD, they get triggered into violent reactions every time they hear a loud noise or something those guys are on disability and we are paying them every month just to live and if we had a treatment that cost 5,000 bucks that could put them back in normal life we would save so much money well we haven't been able to convince the people who fund that, those things that they should put the money into our studies because there's still a big stigma with using an already illegal drug to do medicine so instead, it turns out like 95% of the money we raise at MAPS to do these studies comes from people who have taken psychedelics in their personal lives and it was a positive thing for them and they want to see them freed up for broader use by the public. 
5% of the money comes from people who want to cure PTSD or something like that, and the rest comes from trippers who want the cops to lay off and let people use these for what they're good for. It's, it's, I find that a little sad, right? But I'm also glad that so many millions of people have had the experience of using psychedelics illegally and have learned that they're good for something. Yeah. Um, so it seems like some of the drivers that led you to uh, work on uh, legalizing marijuana and psychedelics uh, was incarceration. Um, now, there is another side which you mentioned is uh, psychedelics, marijuana, do have um, health um, aspects that are good uh, and which actually drives the legalization. Now, my question is, um, within the category of drugs, um, some of them may not have um, clinical, basically, um, positive aspects uh, and might be maybe even more negative than they're positive uh, for people. So now my, my question is, how do you balance um, this drive to um, drive decriminalization and, on the other hand, um, should all drugs be basically legalized or should some of them, if they have no good uh, effects for people, um, stay remain illegal? Right. Well, it's an interesting thing. One thing I learned in, in the first 10 years of drug policy is I looked around at who was working on fixing the legal issues around which drugs, and what I discovered is almost in every case, the people who were working on fixing the marijuana laws were people who smoked marijuana. The people who were working on fixing the psychedelic laws were people who used psychedelics. People who were working on opiates were people who were shooting heroin. And the, that was almost universally true. And what I realized is there's a bit of, of prejudice in the drug-using community for the drugs that people like and against the drugs that other people like. Now, it turns out, if you think about it, there's no reason that the government needs to outlaw a drug that has no useful benefits, right? There are no laws against, like, drinking lye, right? I mean, it's under the kitchen cabinet. You can get it anytime you want. Go ahead and drink it. Why aren't you drinking it? It's perfectly legal. Go right ahead. Right? The reason people take drugs is because they like the effect they get from it. They get some positive benefit from it. And so to say, well, we shouldn't let people use that drug because I don't get a positive benefit from it is not a very good reason because some subset is getting a benefit. So I, while I'm working on marijuana and psychedelics, partly because I have personal experience with those and I do believe they have positive benefits for society, I'm trying to get past my, my drug chauvinism to uh, understand that you know, and I've been living with a man who's in constant pain, actually, for two years. And he is on a wide variety of prescribed and sometimes unprescribed opiates and other painkillers. And chronic pain is a serious problem that the medical community does not know how to treat well. 
and opiates are are the tool are the best tool for the job even though they suck in a whole bunch of ways you know one of the worst ways they suck is they stop working right it takes more and more to have the same effect over time and when you start taking more and more you get more and more side effects you get more and more digestive complications you get more and more losing your judgment you get more and more nodding off and being unable to finish a sentence your pain is well controlled but you don't have much of a life right and so further exploration of different opiates and different ways of using them and different uh combinations of those drugs I think is all for the good and I think if people get a benefit from them even if they don't have a medical issue I think they should be allowed to use them I also I read a paper that was written by one of the last doctors in the UK who was allowed to prescribe opiates for addicts um, throughout uh, many decades in, in England until I think the 1970s or early 80s, under pressure from the United States, the laws were changed. If a physician determined that you were addicted to a drug, they could prescribe you a steady supply of it. Um, we, in our greater wisdom in the United States, basically forced them to get rid of that. But this doctor had experience over a decade or more with such patients. And he said they were from all walks of society, from carpenters to stenographers to corporate executives. They were using opiates or they were using cocaine or whatever. And about, he said about, on average, 10% of people would voluntarily quit them every year, which meant, on average, they were using them for about 10 years. And when they could get a prescription from their doctor and just go down to the pharmacy and fill it, and it cost them $27 to get a month's supply of opiates, they had a life. And their life was fine. They could be productive and do what they needed to do in the world and have families and businesses and all that stuff. And when the UK government forced him to stop supplying those people with opiates, their lives went to hell, right? They ended up buying their drugs on the street because they were still addicted and getting uncertain quality and uncertain quantities, getting drugs that were not what they were advertised as and having uncertain supply. And their lives really went downhill and it was hard to hold a job and hard. It's like all the things that we attribute to Addiction, it turns out, were not a problem with addiction. They were a problem with the legal regime. So this doc had a really powerful argument to say, just let people use these things if they're addicted, and they tend to solve their own problem. And you don't need to solve it for them. Yes? Um, I'm curious about the strategy with uh, corporate interests. Uh, and in specific with, um, well, not specific, but with the vantage point of um, the ends justifying the means. Um, 
Can you be a little more specific? Like, well, I like know. Um, you know, there's traders with hedge funds and stuff, and you can monetize. There's a lot of money in drugs, right? So right. There's people, a lot of people interested, and you could have a lot of arbitrage. How do you like form alliances with corporations or big tobacco? Is that a thing? It's, it's a difficult area to work in. Okay, right. So this has become an issue around the marijuana industry as opposed to like the marijuana legalization movement because the two groups have slightly different aims. Right? The legalization movement basically wants it to be freely available to everybody, you know, and available in any store or whatever, and the marijuana industry wants to be able to make money out of it, corner the market in some way, you know, be the preferred supplier in their state, in their neighborhood or whatever, have products that nobody else has so that people have to come to them to get them, etc. And navigating those uh, differences has been a challenge sometimes, depending. On the other hand, the whole thing about big tobacco and big marijuana is a smokescreen, right? It's, it's a fake concern that's thrown up by the opposition movement. And there's a group in the opposition called SAM. Uh, it stands for uh, Sane Alternatives on Marijuana or something like that. It's run by a former congressman and uh, uh, a guy who is uh, sort of an activist for family values. And they are basically old-style prohibitionists in new sheep's clothing. They don't want the marijuana laws to change. Whenever we propose a change, they say, oh, that's too radical. You should do something easy, smaller, simpler, you know, slow down the process of fixing the marijuana laws. We think, you know, 600,000 people in prison is too many. We ought to get them out as soon as possible. They're like, no, slow it down. And when they say, we already have big tobacco, and big tobacco is just going to come in and make big marijuana and, you know, turn everybody into marijuana addicts and make them, you know, suck money out of them forever. It's not actually a real thing. In almost 20 years of working in this movement, I have never seen a tobacco company express any interest in bringing out a marijuana product. I mean, if you think about it, they're some of the most hated companies on the planet. Right? If they were going to branch out of tobacco and get into something else, why would they take a hugely controversial thing like marijuana? Why don't they go into like buying companies supplying clean water or, you know, consumer goods, uh, soap, anything, you know? They can they could be a conglomerate moving into any field. Why would they move into one that's so fraught with issues as marijuana? They got too many issues already. So instead, this is just a scare tactic. Yeah, go ahead. And is that true for like um, like other areas as well, with aligning with corporate interests with policy change, or are there some players that it's kind of that you like work together with? Well, so there are people we can work together with, and 
A great example of, of doing it wrong happened in Ohio a few years ago where a group of 10 investors got together. These were rich people who were politically connected in the state who said, this medical marijuana stuff is happening all over the country. Let's make it happen in Ohio, but give ourselves the monopoly. Each of them put half a million dollars in, so they had $5 million to run an initiative. They got to write it themselves and put it up in front of the public. They, they wrote into the initiative the GPS coordinates of the places that were allowed to grow marijuana. And curiously, they owned all of those pieces of property. So if the public had voted for this, they would have voted in a monopoly to those property holders. These are the only 10 people in the whole state who can grow marijuana. And interestingly, the public didn't buy it. And the legislature hated it. Um, and they tried, the legislature came out strongly against it. Now, we expect legislatures to come out against us every time we propose a good pot law, I mean, to, to make a reform. But they particularly hated the idea of building a monopoly into the state constitution. And so, in fact, they put on the same ballot an initiative that would amend the state constitution to prevent any future initiative from making a monopoly. And the voters voted for that one and not for the one that would have made the marijuana monopoly. So those guys basically got their, got their toes burned. They spent five million bucks and didn't get their monopoly. So they, it turns out, like a year or two later, they came to the Marijuana Policy Project and said, okay, we know we fucked up. Let's work together. You guys seem to know how to pass marijuana laws that actually will get passed. We'll provide some of the funding. Activists will provide some of the funding. And together we'll make this work. And we had a negotiation where they're like, okay, we understand we can't have a permanent monopoly on everything. What can we get? And we're like, well, how about if you get priority in applying for the licenses? Like, for the first six months, this set of people can get a license, and then after that, anybody can get a license to grow pot or to sell it or whatever. Um the idea is to give them some incentive to donate the money so that we get a positive public policy change and we give them a temporary benefit for it. So as a nonprofit, the Marijuana Policy Project is, is for public benefit. That's what we exist for, is to try to educate the public and make, make things better. So we're in there looking out for the public interest these donors are in there looking out for their own private interest, and we cut a deal where we'll give them some temporary advantage in return for the public getting the long-term benefit. Negotiating that is sometimes tricky because some of them try to play hardball and say, 
if you don't give us what we want, we'll just walk. And sometimes we have to say, all right, Saka, see you later. We'll go work in this state where the people are more reasonable. And you won't get your monopoly here. You won't get anything here. Because you don't know how this dynamic works. You don't know this, this field, and we do. And so we play hardball back with them, and maybe we come to something and maybe we don't. But we can make progress in some states. So I'm getting signs that we're low on time. Have got any short questions? Um, I found it interesting that uh, people want to decriminalize, but they don't want to take the time to set up um, the infrastructure for dispensaries. Uh, I wonder, you know, it's my understanding that dispensaries are are not fed fed regulated. They're only state regulated, so they're only taxed by states, which makes them cash-only businesses. Correct? Um, Yeah, they're they're not federally approved at all. Everything that happens in a state where the... Like when an adult smokes a joint in Nevada and it's legal under state law, it's still illegal under federal law. There just isn't a federal cop on every corner to bust you for it. Are are localized government policies benefiting from that additional funding? Oh, yeah. Um, Actually, here in Nevada, the initiative that we passed was supposed to take effect in January, this next January. The governor said... Why are we waiting till January? I want that tax revenue to start coming in in July because I got a budget hole to fill. So he proposed to the legislature that they lop six months out of the schedule and let the dispensaries open up to selling to any adult six months early. And the result will be they'll collect about $50 million in taxes that they wouldn't have collected, and that will go for social services or whatever other hole was in his budget. All right. And uh, our next speaker will be Rick Doblin of MAPS, who uh, is, uh, has just appeared in the back. So uh, stick around, and uh, he'll be speaking in a couple of minutes. Thank you, John. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And if you are interested in listening to Rick Doblin's talk that John just mentioned, you can listen to it right now, because I featured that talk last month in my podcast 550. Also in today's program notes, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've included a link to the Electronic Frontier Foundation's surveillance self-defense tools that you can use to provide better security and privacy for your internet experience. Also on that EFF site, you'll find other cyber tools that I'm sure you're going to be interested in. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.